0: I, I I love to see improvement I, I I love to see somebody as passionate about the sport as I am mm-hmm. and i I love that the the sport and the passion can bring discipline and dedication and when I see all of that come together it's it's so exciting mm-hmm. you know and, and it can be at any level i love i love working at uh, or with any level rider as long as there's some Passion and excitement, and, you, and you're able to see some growth.
1: Welcome to Practical Horseman's Podcast, a show featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and this week's episode is with top hunter jumper equitation trainer Frank Madden. Frank fell in love with the sport after his first pony ride at the age of three. He competed successfully in hunters and jumpers as a junior, and soon after found his niche in the sport in teaching. Recognized as one of the most successful trainers of young talent, Frank's students dominate the junior ranks and finals, and he has been a fixture in the winner's circle at all the major equitation finals for over four decades. In addition to teaching, Frank is a respected clinician, top R judge, and the head trainer and owner of Capitol Hill Show Stables in Middlefield, Connecticut. In this episode, Frank explains why he was drawn to teaching, his love of drag racing and how that influenced his teaching style, how he stayed passionate about the sport over the years, how he's been so consistently successful, and more. Now let's jump right into the episode as Frank explains how he became hooked on riding.
0: Um... A little interesting because, you know, I was the first member of our family with any sort of passion about horses, and it just simply started with uh, a dream of having a horse in in my backyard, which was really consisted of a pine grove. So it was a little bit of a romantic thought. Probably when I was about three years old, I ended up getting a little rocking horse, a Palomino rocking horse. Mm-hmm. He was then called pal. I practiced on him. At that point, my parents knew nothing about horses or the sport. And uh, it turned into my first pony ride at a carnival. And I just thought sitting on that pony's back in a saddle, seeing that long neck and the ears and the mane was just so, so neat. And then it turned into a Sunday drive. My dad loved to drive through Massachusetts looking at properties and things like that. And we came upon the Andover Riding Academy, which is now apartments. But back then in the early 60s, uh, we ended up signing me up for my first riding lesson, and it kind of grew from there.
1: And, I mean, your, your brother is obviously very involved with the sport. Did you kind of take the lead on that? And then he, he saw how fun it was, and he decided he wanted well,
0: to? Well, John had a little different journey. He, you know, at one point... I think everybody in my family. Mom took a few lessons. Dad kind of got serious about it. Um, And my brother Matt and John also got involved to the extent they were riding ponies. Um, John never really fell in love with the sport. He, while I was falling in love with showing in the metal, McClay, things like that, junior hunters, junior jumpers. He was falling in love with uh, motocross. Mm-hmm. So he was a big motocross racer. We were all hockey players. And uh, he he got involved with the sport a little bit later when he was kind of getting done with school. And I told him, I said, why don't you get out of the cold up in the northeast and, and come to Florida? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how he got reunited with with the um sport.
1: And at what point did riding kind of become something serious for you? And You went from riding the ponies to kind of thinking, hey, this could be something that I can do.
0: Yeah, I I lived a pretty sheltered life um, in terms of being underexposed to what was really out there um, for a junior rider like myself. And it wasn't until I met Bill Cooney, who later became my first partner in In the business, Uh, we started Beacon Hill Show Stables in 1983. Uh, Prior to that, Bill really taught me some great techniques in in basic riding and basic training of horses and introduced me to the equitation division at that time. You know, the two big finals were the medal finals at Harrisburg and the McClay finals at Madison Square Garden. So that really invigorated me. I was losing a little bit of interest because I didn't really see a future for myself, um, in this, in the industry or in the sport. But, uh, you know, he really got me going. And probably when I finished my last junior year in 1976, I knew then that I really wanted to stay with the sport. Initially it was as a rider. And then, uh, I soon figured out between some of the financial commitments you'd have to, um, be able to make, um, and, and some of the natural talent you would need to really make it big in the sport, I kind of realized that I love the sport, I loved horses, I love competition, but I, I thought I had a knack for teaching, so I kind of went in, in the teaching direction.
1: What is it about teaching that you love?
0: Um, I, I i love to see improvement i i i love to see somebody as passionate about the sport as i am mm-hmm. and i i love that the the sport and the passion can bring discipline and dedication and when i see all of that come together it's it's so exciting mm-hmm. you know and and it can be at any level i love i love working at uh or with any level rider as long as there's some passion and excitement and and you're able to see some growth but uh, um, you know I've done this for for as a professional for four and a half decades and there there's not a lot of totally new things coming down the pike for me but I have to say you know I still love getting up in, in working with horses and with with riders who love the sport and trying to trying to create some sort of success there. Whether it's at a local level or just a good, safe um level where people are trying to enjoy their horses a little bit more, or, you know, the level you see a Jesse Springsteen or Brian Gutal get to. So those are some past some former students that have they did well as juniors and have gone on to be top riders internationally, and and uh, they have a lot of passion for the sport.
1: I mean, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for four decades, and you've been consistently successful bringing up these these riders that become champions. What what's your secret?
0: <laughs> uh, stubbornness, perseverance. <laughs> um, no, I I, I think. I think I have a real strong grasp of the fundamentals of the sport. Um, I, I struggled enough with the sport myself that it made me study it. It wasn't something that came so naturally to me. Um, I, I, really, I really have had some in, incredible opportunities working with some great professionals throughout my lifetime. Um, legends, legends of the sport. And um, I, I, I would say the biggest thing is just been determination in, and not ever giving up. What's interesting, it's, it's, this is a fun time of year. It's a little bit of a grueling time. I, I've had so many students get top ribbons and win these equitation finals. And the older I get, the more I say, "How did I ever do it?" You know, because so many things have have to come together. You know, the horse has to be on, the rider has to be on. Um, you have to benefit a little bit from other people's bad luck, and and for to have happened for me so many times is uh, almost a mystery to me. But uh, but it's it's a challenge, and, and it gets me out of bed every day. So I, I think I think when you when you meet somebody who's really good at what they do, I'll use my sister in law BZ, for example, you know, they've got enough confidence to go out and achieve their goals, but never so much that they, they almost have to get out of bed each day and and ask themselves if they can still do it. They have to keep proving it to mm-hmm. themselves. You know, I thought Bruce Springsteen's a little bit like that. You know, he's I think he's a genius. Very, he's a grounded genius, um, but but there's that little bit of doubt that makes you get out of bed and in makes you chase that passion every day. So I, I think I've got a little bit of that in me, and security, but also the lack of security or confidence.
1: So it sounds like you have, um, besides all your equestrian mentors, are. Or- Influences people you look up to sounds like you just mentioned Bruce Springsteen. Do you have other you know People out there that have kind of influenced you
0: interesting enough, you know, I've always had a passion for I've always liked mechanical things and tractor trailers and race cars and things and and there was a About a ten-year period of my life that I got involved with a sport that I always was passionate for and the passion came from my father which was the sport of drag racing and I got involved with it um, at, at a very low level and only raced at that low level, low level a couple of times and soon realized I wanted to jump to a higher level, which was probably the equivalent to having a high amateur jumper. <laughs> and I met this fella who ended up being world champion um, in this particular class, uh, I believe 14 times. His name was Frank Manzo. He lived down the street. It was by chance we met, and uh, I bought one of his turnkey race cars. It was; it'd be like buying a turnkey amateur owner jumper. And he he, he really um, had a huge influence on me as a teacher because he was so basic. He was so you know. And here I was a uh, I would think I was in my early thirties, and I got put into the sport. And your mind is cluttered with anxiety and, and the lack of experience and knowledge, and and he was smart enough to feed me one thing at a time, one or two things every time I got in the race car, and and I was like, God, what a what a wise guy this! Is. And, and it was just an innate thing on his part. He wasn't a he wasn't a schooled um, teacher. I don't think he had had a lot of students, but he he understood how the human mind worked and, and, you know, how people tend to rush. Mm-hmm. And I think I adopted a lot of that uh, um, philosophy from Frank Manzo. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you see, um, with your students or with writers in general, do you see kind of common issues that writers really struggle with?
0: Well, I, th- I think there's uh, two kinds of fears in, in the sport. You know, you have your, your physical fear that can inhibit a rider's growth, and you have mental fear, and I think that's what I see most of the time. Um, the, the, the challenge is trying to get your students to deal with some of those mental fears, especially under uh, stressful situations like a championship. And, you know, I tell my kids all the time, I said, listen, you you ride hours every week and you show minutes most weekends i but i said but how many few championship minutes do you get to experience in a year and it's very few so i really try to capitalize on all these championship minutes so the 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 riders can learn to better understand who they are under pressure and 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 who their mount is under pressure and and it's my job as a coach to try to harness all that and, and and calm it all down and keep it keep the mental clarity with the horse and the mental clarity with the rider, that they're as a team able to go into the ring and and execute the plan that they came up with. And it sounds easy, it's not. But that seems to be the biggest battle at at your higher level. I think what you work on at the lower levels a riders balance and the position of their hands and legs um, I think that all comes relatively quick and I'm a I'm not a teacher who clutters a lesson with a, a lot of words I try to put the riders into environments where the environment is going to improve the position of their leg or the environment's going to help them better with their balance or the environment or the exercise is going to get them using their eyes better. And just that kind of day in and day out um, repetition being put into those positions is what really solidifies the, the position part of their riding. Mm-hmm. But what I had mentioned previous to this was, was having that mental clarity, that, that's, that's, a, that's tough. And and this is, I think, a sport of two things. I think it's a sport of thinkers. You have to be at least in the moment, and if you're really doing your job, a little ahead of the moment. Um, And it's a sport of inches. I think in any division. So.
1: What do you think makes a good horseman?
0: Well, the sport's changed a lot in my lifetime. I mean, what what. What a good horseman or a top horseman was when I was a young kid was a Bobby Burke or a Gene Cunningham or Emerson Burr. Huge influence in my life. uh, Who had run the Fairfield Hunt Club. You know, those were guys who, who really could see a horse from a distance and in quickly assess as to, you know, what kind of confirmation the horse had and identify weaknesses in the confirmation, and, and, you know, be able to treat basic lamenesses um, without always having to call the vet. Um, I think we've evolved into a sport of specialists now and I think so many of the trainers or the younger trainers of today They'll recognize something's not right, but I don't. I don't know if they always know what the problem is. The good news is, I think they're smart enough to gain access to good vets and good blacksmiths to to keep horses in good shape. Um, what I've seen, as far as trends, is a trainer and as a judge, is is the horse flesh. What these young trainers pick out, as far as horses, is is incredible, as good as ever. Um, but but I have to say, um I th- I think some of the some of the actual teaching of riding has digressed in some departments. Mm-hmm. I think that the high end of our industry is is good if not better than ever. I think the middle is a little bit weak. Um, I don't know if I can trace that back to bad horsemanship, but um yeah, I think the name of the game is, is a real solid riding kid on a well-trained, very sound. And when I say sound, not not uh, just sound in, in watching them work under tack, but sound and extremely comfortable, able to do their job well. So sports changed an awful lot that way over the 40 years.
1: What advice would you give to young riders coming up in the sport if they want to make this their career?
0: I, th- I think the best thing to do is what I did. Um, you know, there was a time in my life that I thought my career was going to be no more than being a top groom. Mm-hmm. And and I came to terms with that in my late, ter- late teens, early 20s, and I said, you know what, I'm probably not going to be more than a groom, but I'm going to be the best groom that there is out there and I would say get into a, a good operation you know an operation that um, turns out winners whether it's a hunter, jumper or an equitation horse and rider and and see what makes those operations tick internally and see what they're doing to pick out horses, seeing what they're doing to train the horses, seeing what they're doing to keep the horses comfortable and sound, you know, th- these kids have access to so much today, just mm-hmm. in the palm of their hand with their iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, they can pretty much Google anything. Um, so I think m- maybe some of it comes so easy to the kids these days, they don't have the the burn for it. Last night I saw um, Sidney Shulman win that speed class, that uh, accumulator costume class, and it was clear... You know, it all came together for her. But there was a real burn you could see there uh, with her wanting to win that class. And, uh, you know, it's a long journey. If you're, if you started this at a young age and you're even considering doing it as a professional, it's a grueling, it's a great lifestyle. But it can be a grueling lifestyle. Um, and, and to be able to keep your interests up long enough that you can do that and have longevity to it, I, I think that's, um, that's tough. That's tough. I, yeah, I see a lot, of, a lot of levels of burnout in this sport. And uh, you know, I, think you ha- I think you have to keep changing things up a little bit um, if you want to have longevity i've I've changed the way I do this many times now some some has been by circumstance, some of the changes have been on purpose. Um, just having my stepdaughter in the sport now and being very competitive. what a that that's been like a breath of fresh air, you know, it's really reinvigorated me. I didn't even see that coming 10 years ago, and it's been a huge, huge blessing in my life. And, uh, you know, I'm 61 years old, four decades of it plus under my belt, and, and I don't see any end in sight. I might change it a little bit, but I don't see an end in sight. So that, I don't know if that's advice, <laughs> but that's a little bit of a story.
1: Yeah. And would you say that burnout is the hardest part of the sport or what's the hardest part of the sport for you?
0: Um, burnout has not been a, a, a huge problem for me. I, I think I've been pretty good at changing things up like I just mentioned. You know, I I spend a lot of time from uh, early November until January doing lots of clinics like this this particular season. I don't think I have a, a free weekend. I think they're all filled with clinics. And, um, you know, that can be a little strenuous, the travel and, and the intensity of trying to do a good clinic. But, God, I, I it just energizes me, seeing all these fresh faces and new horses and new problems. I, I think I would have a st- bad case of burnout if I only stuck to my in-house mm-hmm. issues. So by getting on the... Uh, clinic trail, I think that keeps me fresh. Um, Wearing the judge's hat four or five times a year, I think that's another way to keep me fresh. Being involved in some of these different committees, I'm chairman of the um, uh, Competition Standards Committee, and, and, you know, again, it makes you look at things from a different perspective. Um, So all those things kind of keep me... uh, Current in the sport, I've done quite a bit of uh, live streaming lately. You know, that's also kept me kept my eyes sharp and and uh, keeps you relative and current in the sport. So, I think you have to keep changing things up if if you want the longevity of it. Because I've seen so many of my peers through the sport, you know, over the years or in the sport over the years, um, you know, fall in that 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 trap which I call a rut and. Then they get stale, and um, it's, it, it, it's a little sad. I said, John Roper, who I really respect, he's been in the sport for many, many years, and I said to him a couple of years ago, I said, you know, you're, you're aging so gracefully. And, and he, I think when I said it to him, I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm sure, because we talked a little bit about it, he didn't really know how to take it. And then we discussed it. Again, at a latter time, and I said, you know, I meant that as a huge, huge compliment. And and he said, yeah, you know, I, at first I I wasn't really sure what you meant. And he said, then I thought about it, and I took it as a compliment. And and that's that's part of what I'm working at right now. You know, aging gracefully in the sport, in my in my uh, latter years.
1: So when you teach your clinics, is there maybe a favorite training exercise you can share that you like to, to do often?
0: Oh, you know, I, I, I really like to spend a decent amount of time working with the riders on the flat. I think that's huge. Um, and I find when I can get a, a, any level group working on the flat well, I spend a lot of time trying to link that flat work to their jumping work with either very low jumps or Cavalettis, Um and and have that have that really open up the eyes of the riders. Say, geez, I thought my horse was working pretty well in the flat, and you know what? Just over these couple basic Cavaletti exercises, it's apparent that it wasn't it wasn't solid enough, and you know. I think those low jumps and cavalettis can really get you to get them better understanding the intent of flat work and, and the authenticity you need with proper flat work. And then the jumping can be um, you know, such a nice spin off from that. But I, I think one if if you ask for a specific exercise, it's been in in the practical horseman, um, it's just two cavalettis or two low jumps kind of on an slight angle to one another with a distance of 36 feet on a straight line between the two of them and just work that both directions in, in three strides and and uh, see if your horse can do it on, uh, three very even strides with uh, a light balance and active amount of impulsion and uh, uh, a, a rhythm so that's that would be a real specific exercise but but uh that's kind of where my head is in a you know in a in a clinic situation it's so much there's so many different kind of lessons you can give so a clinic is a little bit more for me a generic clinic trying to get people and horses to better understand the fundamentals of the sport. If we did a clinic over natural jumps, that'd be different If we did just a dressage clinic that'd be another type of clinic If we did a clinic um But water jumps, that's another kind of clinic. Uh, You know, if I, my lessons at home are much different when I'm working with a regular student and a regular horse because then the lessons become very Mm horse-specific. You know, there might be a horse with a huge stride and that horse likes to jump to the right. And that's something we're not going to maybe get rid of, but we, we just have to learn how to manage it better over time. So I might come up with some very specific um, horse rider exercises for those particular problems, but you, you don't see that. You don't get that intimate in a clinic setting. You might see some of that, but not not the way you do when it's um, you know a re- regular student and a regular horse that you've oftentimes taken to big horse shows.
1: So. And then um, as a judge, is there something that you wish you could say to the riders coming in that you're about to judge them or advice that you would give to to people going to a horse show? You know, it's
0: probably what everyone else thinks the opposite of. I would love to tell every one of them, I want you to do well. (laughs) Um, uh, and, And then the teaching part of me always comes out. I say, God, I wish I could just tell this kid to do this, or, or to shorten their stirrups, or they need to work a little faster, or they would have won if they had met the first jump on a little bigger stride, you know, and let them know how close they are. So I would say, you know, I, I really think, because I know, I, I've i been in the sport for so long, I know how hard it is to put horses and riders in the ring and how many things can go wrong. I'm a very sympathetic judge. I, I'm, i really feel like I'm their cheerleader and uh and when it doesn't go well I I always try to give the benefit of the doubt to the uh to the exhibitor i had a little girl this summer i was judging in traverse city and they, i don't know why they did it but they ha- they put a portage on right at the corner um of this hunter ring i was judging and this we were halfway through the class and it was Sunday morning about nine o'clock and this guy comes out in a truck and starts pumping out the portage on and this poor girl lands off a line heading right towards that corner of the ring and the horse obviously shied from the noise and what was going on and kind of cut the end of the ring and and uh, cross canter the whole end of the ring, and then she finished up. I think there was another two lines to finish. And I radioed right to the end gate. I said, "Listen, t- tell that last rider that if she'd like a re-ride, um, she can have one because you know she was she was put into a situation that no one else in that class had to had to deal with." And her response was, "Well, how was my score?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, it, it wasn't great." <laughs> So she came back, and, and she did her re-ride, and she ended up getting a nice ribbon. But I, you know, this is a difficult sport, and and I think if a judge is doing his job, I think those tough calls should always go towards the exhibitor, and uh, you know that's that's my take on things.
1: And um, some of our listeners might remember that you were the star of the Animal Planet show, mm-hmm. Horsepower, where you were kind of pitted against Andre Dignelli and his students. <laughs> and um, you just talk a little bit about what it was like being filmed? And did you become a celebrity after?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I'll tell you a little funny story about that later. But um, no, the, you know, I thought it was a great thing for our, for our industry. I didn't really know how it was going to turn out for me. It turned out to be a great thing. That was the year Brian Gutal ended up winning the McClay finals and the medal finals. I, yeah. Well, anyway, she she ended up winning all student. four finals, yeah, and and really made history and it and it really turned out for a great storyline for me being involved with it. But I I wanted it to be a little I mean my personality's, I enjoy people. I, I I wanted people to enjoy what they saw. I wanted the sport to to be looked upon as something that was fun and and kind of exciting. Um, so I I had I had some fun with it, you know. And, and um, I only watched it once. <laughs> I, I, I I saw each episode once, and and I. I that was enough for me, okay. but I, I did get a lot of notoriety out of it, and just a funny story. I, I told this story yesterday to uh, Scott Walker and Sam Walker. We were trying to kill some time, and and Sam's dad and I were were uh, just telling stories, and, and Sam actually was fun because he, he sat on um, one of the stall doors where a horse was stabled, and he said... Tell me about how you started teaching Jesse Springsteen. So I was like, "Well, that was a funny story," and kind of told him um, how that all happened. And but to move to move the clock ahead, uh, that Horsepower show had just aired. Um, I was at the uh, American Invitational at the Tampa Stadium, and I was walking the course. But John and Beesy were there. I think she was riding Authentic, and she she won that year. So we were on a big roll. Anyway, walking the course, I had lots of kids saying, oh, you know, can I get my picture with you? And can I get my autograph? And so anyway, we cleared the course and go up in the stands and I'm sitting in the stands and it's myself. And uh I think Patty Springsteen was to my right. And then Bruce Springsteen was to, to Patty's right. And we we're watching the class and Bruce is pretty good at, you know, hiding with under a baseball hat and you know he doesn't try to stick out like a sore thumb, but anyway, during the class, I had several kids come down during the class, saying, "Can I have your autograph, Mr. Madden?" and all that. And 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 Bruce is like, I th- after a little while, I think, "Why they're asking him for his autograph? <laughs> no one's asking me for my autograph." So then he started ribbing me about, you know, <laughs> geez, Frank, you know, Mr. real <laughs> famous here and all. So so. Uh, Anyway, Beezy ended up winning that night. Springsteen's ended up going home. And uh, we went to an, a, a party at the stadium. And, it, again, it was fun because Beezy had won it. And I think John and Beezy and myself and I think my brother Matt was there. And we're, we're walking to where the party was going to be. And I kind of noticed to my left this this guy walking a little bit behind me with his wife and finally the guy says to me hey excuse me sir can i ask you a question i said sure said, my wife wants to know who you are because she wants to know who's more famous than bruce springsteen <laughs> <laughs> so i thought that was hysterical <laughs> but that was my uh, that was uh, that was that was fun that was a good a good good time in my life and and uh, you know that that's what the sport has brought me, you know, some of those great experiences. And that was, that was, that show was one of them. And, and, you know, I'm a, I try to be a modest guy and, and you feel a little awkward when people would approach you after something like that because I was just doing my job. And like I said, it, it worked out well for me and, and I, you still get kids today watching it.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think USCF even recently yeah, put it back yeah, up again. It's amazing. So.
0: It's amazing. So. Mr. Madden, your hair wasn't so gray when the no, show. No. <laughs> no, I Haven't had that one, but Mom, are you sure that's the guy? Yes, honey. Oh,
1: that's great. Do you mind sharing the story about how Jesse Springsteen started riding? Well, it was
0: it, I, I was I moved from Old Salem Farm to Colts Neck, New Jersey. Uh, it was 1988 or nine. I was renting a little farm. I had just split up my business from Bill Cooney, so I had uh, the business on my own. And I was kind of new to that area, getting to you know know a lay of the land. I'd been there for maybe two or three years. And there was a there was a I can't even remember her last name. Her name was Maureen. She was a girl that worked at Monmouth Race She galloped racehorses. And she she came up for lessons. And, uh, you know, I'd give her a break because, you know, I knew she wasn't making much money. And we got to become somewhat friendly only because I was trying to help her out. And she showed up one day and she said, you know, Frank, I bought this horse off the track. I was wondering if there's any way I could board it with you. And I said, listen, Maureen, I know you're on a budget. I said, there's a little two-stall barn out in that backfield. I'll, I'll let you put your horse in there for a couple hundred dollars a month. I don't even want to go to big horse shows anymore. You know, I just want to have some some uh, uh, kind of boarding-type customers and, and lie low. I had kind of gone through a rough time with my ex-partner. So I was kind of regrouping. So my response, I said, yeah, fine. Have her come over, whatever. Thinking nothing's going to come of it. So I think it was the very next day, Patty shows up. With Maureen, and she was very nice, and we kind of hit it off. But I'm like, you know what? This this kind of thing happens all the time. People come in, they say they want to do something, and nothing ever comes of it. Well, it was quite the contrary to that. So Patty was like, you know, Bruce and I, we uh, we just bought a farm on the other side of Colts Neck, and and I'd love for you to come meet Bruce, and I'd love for you to come see the farm. And well, next thing I know, it's it's across the street from this piece of property that I always adored. I you know, I didn't know if it would ever come up for sale, but I was in love with that part of the town. And so I got a tour of the farm and this and that. Anyway, it was an old dairy barn or cow barn that we converted help with my help in King Construction. Turned it into a really nice show horse barn. Um, and it was really geared for um, trail horses and guest horses and you know maybe a couple trail horses for Bruce and Patty and and they wanted to their goal was along with my help to try to set it up so friends could come visit and go on trails and have it be safe and um, just at that time the piece of property across the street from Springsteen's came up for sale and this realtor in the area knew that I was looking for looking for something and he knew I liked that property so he tracked me down right away without getting into a lot of boring details I ended up buying that property with the help of Bruce and he was you know a, a huge help and we never he, he we never talked about it but I think he thought if you know if Frank really failed to uh, get my money back, I'm gonna end up owning a nice piece of property that's across the street." Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't— <laughs> Nothing to lose. It, it, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you wanted more property, but somehow it, it was justified. So, we had this, you know, nice little neighborhood thing going on, uh, um, Jessie at the time was maybe four or five years old, and, uh, you know, she was—I I really, we I really wasn't interested in helping her out at that stage, so I kind of directed them to Coltsneck Equestrian Center. Jill Yenno was there, and Mary Babick was there, and Jesse was getting some lead line lessons and got going and And then Jesse started to come over. we did a little bit of um, work with her at that young age across the street, and I remember uh, the national horse Show being at the Meadowlands. And I made a suggestion that, you know, Jesse, Jesse should show in the lead line at the Meadowland. And uh, so we all drove in together, and we had this little pony that was provided by Neck Equestrian Center, this little paint. And we met the pony downstairs, and I was going to lead Jesse. And, and Bruce is like, this is so weird. He goes, you know, when they opened this arena, I was the opening act. He said, kidding. for me to have opened this arena, and now my daughter is going to be in there riding, oh, wow. is, you know,
1: it was a <laughs> yeah. little surreal,
0: I think, for him at the time. Um, but then Jesse's riding started to blossom at, at local levels, um, and then we were very involved with her riding on ponies. I think she was champion reserve at the Devon Horse Show on large ponies. And that went into showing in the Junior Hunters in equitation, won the medal in the McClay Finals. And one year she didn't get through the Regionals. She made a mistake in the Regionals. Went to the USCT Finals and was second. And that got her uh, into the McClay Finals that year. So that's, that's kind of how all that went. But they were they're a class, class, class family solid so rounded I mean you know the epitome of great parents so
1: and um, what do you have any hobbies outside of the saddle or other interests?
0: You, you know I still I still love the drag racing I still stay in touch with that uh, some through live stream and things like that but really my, my hobby right now is watching my stepdaughter ride mm. um, and, and, and the horse we got her is a horse that's come a long way. I think he's a top, top horse. And I, I guess my really my, my hobby is my family. And you know, I love traveling with them, uh, running our business together. Taylor just um, uh, got a scholarship at SMU, a riding scholarship. So I'm so proud of her. She got us, she got, she on her own applied for a scholarship here to this horse show and she got one of three scholarships so she's a great kid great rider she's she's she has a real super head for the sport um and and she's become a valuable part of the business now you know she helps with the horses the work list she can help with the logistics you know so it's turned into Something I, I never imagined being yeah. in this position 10 or 15 years ago, it was not on my radar screen. But I'm probably at the happiest stage of my life right that's now. Great.
1: So nice that that's something that you two can share, too.
0: Oh, yeah. And you know, she went, she's gone under Taylor Griffiths for many, many years. And she just recent, recently is now Taylor Griffiths Madden. Oh,
1: huh. that's so nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why do you think you've been so successful?
0: Um, so the last ten years have been been a little bit lean and in rebuilding years and and uh, so I'm kind of proud that i've been able to be successful in so many different ways throughout my career It hasn't been just one uh, one formula and in and a, and a safe formula um, i think i've'm a little bit like my dad where we always found ways to to be a little bit different mm-hmm. you know we, we didn't always go for the for the mainstream solution and um and and i think i think because of that you know, along with my drive it's kept me fresh and it's kept me hungry and and if you call me successful <laughs> i'll take that but um yeah i'm i'm gonna work hard at it to keep some of that success rolling so
1: just one one final question Um, what advice would you give to your younger self looking back on on your decades-long career
0: oh god that's the toughest question for last there's there's one part part of me that would not have changed a thing that's and then then I, I think I wished I had the, um, I guess you, you just don't, you think you're listening to older people or wiser people when you, and you don't. <laughs> and, and I think you just have to learn, you know, if you really want to become who you ultimately end up becoming, you have to make mistakes. And, um, you know, uh. I, I if 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 I was who I am today at twenty four ha, I'd have been tough. Tough. But uh no, I have no regrets and, and um my my only, you know, clear advice to anybody, listen and and take advice from from people with because it's they probably lived it. So that would be it
1: thanks for listening to this week's episode and join us again in two weeks upcoming conversations are with rising star brian mogry olympian and pratt columnist bz madden and international show jumper andrew wells you can subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts soundcloud stitcher or wherever you listen while you're there please rate and review the show i'm jocelyn Pearson. you've been listening to the practical horseman podcast